Hello, everyone. You're in it. This is Dave Birnbaum. Today, we have the audio from a webinar called Design for Multisensory Experiences that I helped produce recently as a part of my job at Immersion Corporation with our partner, PunchCut, a design agency based in San Francisco. I worked with PunchCut last year on technology strategy for 5G and the tactile internet. In that project, we asked ourselves, in a world with ubiquitous wireless broadband, advanced AI, and next-generation haptics, what new products and services might become possible? Some of that was included in the webinar, but we also talked about voice interaction, the spatial web, and automotive cockpit design. The webinar included visual slides, and even though you're obviously not getting those here, I listened to the audio and I think it's possible to follow without the visuals. If you're interested in watching the full webinar, check the show notes for the link or visit punchcut.com and find it from there. Here we go, design for multisensory experiences. Hello everyone. Welcome to PunchCut's webinar today. I'm Ken O'Weiler, Managing Director and Co-Founder of PunchCut. We welcome all of you who've joined us today. Looks like we have a good crew here. Um, we're seeing a few more come in. We're really excited to share the next chapter of our Conscious Experience Design Series today, focused on design for multi-sensory experiences. And we're honored to co-present this session today with our friends from Immersion Corporation. So let's move forward. For those of you who may have seen our recent webinar on conscious experience design, I want to thank you for coming back and want to take a moment for those of you who are not able to make it just to summarize our perspective on conscious experience design. Conscious experience design is a growing design practice for us at PunchCut. It uh, focuses on designing for this evolving relationship of humans and machines or people and technology. What we've seen to date is that we're at a point where AI is enabling us to grow the consciousness of machines in new ways. At the same time, people are demanding more conscious experiences that empower them, that protect them, and that are more inclusive. So with these two drivers, we believe humans and machines are really evolving together. And in response, companies and we as designers must evolve as well. And so in our last webinar, we acknowledged that this growing consciousness is requiring companies and designers to evolve their skills and insights uh, with new methods, new disciplines, uh, all focused on creating better product and service experiences for the future. The core of conscious experience design is really built on this idea of becoming conscious together. And designing for consciousness means we need to understand consciousness. And so that falls into these four areas that we believe consciousness centers around how we think, how we feel, how we act, how we value. Each of these concepts forms the basis for these four dimensions of conscious experience design. And we as a company have built practices in this area, but we've also been growing and sharing in our last webinar about the paradigm shifts, some of the new disciplines and new methods. So today we're going to dive deeper into the one area focused on sensory immersion. And that area is an exciting one for us as we're seeing the boundaries between software and objects and devices. They're beginning to fade away as these intelligent systems become more integrated into everything around us. So in this next decade, fully immersive experiences are going to really engage the complete range of our senses 
and perception. So we see immersive design as really that practice of designing for all senses, creating these multimodal experiences and how it fits in the real world. So that's what we want to dive into today. First, let me introduce Punch Cut and then our panelists, and we can move forward. For those of you who are not familiar with Punch Cut, we are a digital product design and innovation company. Uh, we've been doing this for about 18 years now. We've been working with companies to really help them design for the next era of business transformation where digital is really transforming businesses. And so we have been privileged to work with a variety of companies, all focused really on helping them to design for change. Uh, we provide three areas of service, future vision, that's where we have research strategy, product design, and team growth. One thing about PunchCut, and really it's the number one thing that makes PunchCut great is really our people. We put people first as we focus on the future, and we're immensely proud of the talented teams and leaders that we have. And I'm excited to introduce today two leaders from PunchCut and one from one of our client partners. I want to first introduce our Director of Immersive Design, Vicki Knup. Hey everyone, thanks for making time today. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm Vicki Knup, I'm the Director of Immersive Design here. Uh, I've been with PunchCut for a little over five years. And Immersive Design is a relatively new team that really looks at anything that goes beyond the screen or the flat screen. So voice, motion, prototyping, sound, all of those pieces that go into it. So I'm really excited to be able to share some of our uh, experiences and learnings around that. Great, thanks Vicki. And we also have Reggie Rajati. He is our Director of Interaction Design. Hey, everyone. Glad to be here with you all today. For the last almost five years or so, I've had the privilege of leading and serving our community of interaction designers and design researchers at PunchCut as the Director of Interaction Design. I've also had the privilege of helping design a lot of multi-sensory, multimodal experiences ranging from AI-powered devices to wearables, automotive interfaces, VR experiences, and haptic experiences. We're just very excited to share, uh, share with you today. Great. Thanks, Reggie. As I said, we're really privileged to work with really the world's leading technology companies and teams. And a close partner of ours is Immersion Corporation. And we're really pleased to welcome Dave Birnbaum from Immersion to join us in presenting today. He is Distinguished Staff Office of the CTO. So Dave, welcome. Please introduce yourself. Thanks, Ken. Hi, everyone. I'm Dave. My background is in haptic research and technology development. Uh, I've been working in that most of my career now. I was a founding member of the UX team at Immersion, so I also have a UX and design background. And I'm really excited to be here with our partner, PunchCut, to talk about some of the great work we've done together. So just a quick introduction about Immersion. Immersion has been around over 25 years, so we were part of the first tech boom in the 90s. And our mission has been to bring haptics to the human-computer interaction experience. We work across a variety of different markets, including gaming, automotive, mobile, and others. And our technology extends across the entire haptic ecosystem. So today we'll be talking more about design than some of the others, but it's important to understand that haptics really requires a full stack of technology to enable an end-user experience. And so we really love working with PunchCut because PunchCut's process is to think systematically about the entire user experience. 
So we as a haptics company really want to understand how haptics can add value to multi-sensory cross-modal experiences. And PunchPets really helped us understand what's possible there. Thanks, Dave. Well, let's start. The discipline of modern UX was really born in the visual era. For the last 35 years, uh, since the introduction of the graphical user interface in the 80s, the uh, user experience design has been a discipline and medium really dominated by the visual. But even as the touchscreen revolutionized UI, the sensory emphasis of that experience has always been more screen than touch. However, let's take a step back. And when we take a broader view of consumer technology over time, it's clear that the overarching trend is pushing interfaces beyond the visual. We believe that it's all pointing to a future that is multi-sensory. And this is exciting for us as a company because we believe that design has always been multi-sensory. It's never been about one sense or one modality. And we've centered our design practice around designing for humans, humans who use their multiple senses when using products and services. And today's products and services will need to evolve to be multi-sensory or be replaced by competitors that have designed their products with multi-sensory considerations at its core. So that is what we'll be covering today, multi-sensory design. We hope that you leave this webinar with an appreciation for how sensory design affects your work as a designer or product owner or stakeholder and how it will continue to grow. We know that designers who understand multi-sensory design will be much sought after um, in this new era. So today we'll be covering what multi-sensory design is, how it adds value to interactive experiences. Uh, we'll be focusing on um, tactile voice and spatial design specifically how they can be combined to really enhance experiences for voice agents to wearables to automotive and other experiences. And then finally, we'll leave you with some principles that should guide multi-sensory design. But before we dive into the specifics of multi-sensory design, let's ground ourselves with an overview of our senses. Of course, we're all familiar with the senses that govern what we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch. But there are also other senses that we don't necessarily tend to think about that much such as your awareness of the position and movement of your body is governed by your sense of proprioception. Our balance and spatial orientation is controlled by equilibrioception. Our ability to feel pain is controlled by nociception. And then our awareness of what's going on inside our body, such as our hunger or when we're full, is governed by interoception. And although modern and even emerging interfaces can't fully address all of these senses, we can design for more senses than we've been able to before, which is exciting. But why now, right? Why, why talk about multi-sensory design now? Haven't we always been able to design multi-sensory experiences? In a way, yes. However, there are rapid developments in technology that enable us to take our design practice to the next level. We believe that the next level of interaction design will be defined by the convergence of these three technologies, AI, 5G, and XR. Sometimes they're collectively called the tactile internet because they'll let you interact seamlessly with digital artifacts in much of the same way that you interact with physical objects. For AI, sensory design will provide virtual beings with a sense of touch and a channel for emotional intelligence. For 5G, sensory design will enable ubiquitous, always-on experiences. And for XR, sensory design will finally deliver on the promise of extended reality, increasing immersion and engagement with our digital content. 
And it's exciting because multi-sensory experiences deliver so much more value, such as they are more intuitive. And intuitive is defined as what one feels to be true, even without conscious reasoning. And why is it important to have an intuitive experiences? Well, an intuitive experience helps us to enter the state of mind necessary to successfully perform a task. And that's especially important in today's hyper-stimulated world, which is potentially exacerbated by pressures we feel uh, during this pandemic. And we really look at intuitive from two different dimensions. And I've been talking about it from the point of view of the human, because today the burden of intuiting a product's behavior and the interface to access this behavior is on us as people, as humans. And in tomorrow's world, the burden will be on machines to intuit human behavior. In other words, we believe in a future where technology is learning to be human rather than humans learning technology. Multisensory design is more universal. So when products address different senses and offer different modes of interacting with it, it opens up a wider set of audiences and scenarios. Products designed with situational or long-term limitations in mind are more inclusive and often have more universal appeal. Why? Because when we're not able to use one sense, we tend to substitute it with another. Also, there's many examples of products in history that have tried to solve for people with limitations that are now kind of more universal, like Alexander Graham Bell's phone, the first typewriter, products by OXO, even curb ramps, as you see here. And then another benefit of multi-sensory design is that it's more memorable. Multi-sensory experiences are more sticky. In today's attention economy, where attention is a scarce commodity, creating lasting impressions is really more challenging than ever. Uh, we know in education, research shows that students who engage more of their senses while learning retain information longer. Also, studies show in retail, people are more likely to purchase items in a store if they can touch them. And they also have a stronger affinity for brands that they've had a physical interaction with. More intuitive, universal, memorable experiences ultimately leads to more possibilities for your products, your clients, your users, your business, your impact in the world. And what you see here is a very physical scene and imagine what she's feeling, hearing, seeing, and maybe even smelling in the moment. Now imagine making this moment digital with multi-sensory technology. And when this becomes possible, what new possibilities are there for product services and businesses that exist? And we've really only begun to scratch the surface when it comes to leveraging our senses in design. So now we want to dig into three key areas of multisensory design, voice, tactile, and spatial design. And I'd like to hand this over to Vicky, who will talk about designing for voice. So we're all familiar with, you know, Siri and Alexa to give directions or to play music. However, voice agents are more than Q&A devices. Conversational interfaces make products easier to use and more efficient. Voice extends access to people who may not be comfortable with technology or who have limited vision or low dexterity. For everyone, voice makes it easier to get information when your hands are busy or when you're not near your device. And it's being integrated everywhere. Uh, however, the decision to integrate voice should be driven by user need and problem solving. So with wearables, voice fills in for a keyboard, allowing for text input and search. In the home, voice gives users freedom from their devices to do other things like cooking or childcare. Automotive assistants allow drivers to keep focus on the road. And of course, mobile assistants create shortcuts and efficiency, reducing cognitive load. 
And Punchpad has actually been lucky enough to work with several companies to design out specialized voice experiences in a wide variety of areas. And voice, more than other common modalities, isn't the same everywhere. Because of the cultural nuance of language, it's important to understand expectations in different regions. So one example of this is a research project in which we partnered with a major auto manufacturer to understand cultural variations and expectations of voice agents across the world. And what we learned is that people want customization, but in very different ways. So the hypothesis was that users wanted minimal personality and very abstract visuals. And that was true, but only in some places. You know, in Germany, participants responded negatively to even asking the question if the voice agent should have a face or if you wanted to chat casually with it. However, in China, participants were much more open to having casual conversations and relationships with their voice agent and were interested in more personality, like a face or voice options. And conversational design comes down to designing for conversation. So the conversation you have with a person isn't all that different than what you're going to have with a voice agent. Paul Grace, who is a philosopher of language, believed that a good conversation was born out of each speaker cooperating to move that conversation forward. And he created four maxims for moving conversation forward called the cooperative principle. And it's about being honest, being on topic, being efficient, and being clear. And that translates well to voice design. Don't overpromise. Don't say, ask me anything if you can only give directions. Don't state the obvious. So if the lights are on, don't tell me they've turned on. Be discreet. So privacy is really important. So everyone in the room doesn't need to know about your upcoming doctor's appointment. For relation, remember things. So don't make people repeat themselves. And when we're thinking of manner, you should stay in character. So define the personality of your agent from the very beginning. If it's neutral and by the book, stay in that character. If it's sassy and fun, keep to that tone. And then always write for the ear. So say things out loud, do table reads of scripts to ensure things make sense. And also maintain these four maxims when something doesn't go right, if a response is incomplete or the user changes their request. So an example of this would be asking kind of the same question, but in three different ways. So is it five? Is it five yet? And oh my God, is it five yet? And what we're looking at here is intent, right? So the first intent is to actually get the time. So the response would be it's 1.43 p.m. Is it five yet? The person is asking for the time remaining. Finally, oh my God, is it five yet? That's showing a little bit more emotion and the user's probably venting. So offering up a response that responds to that tone as well. Keep in mind these six guidelines while you're designing out your hero flows for voice. And of course, understanding these guidelines is really just the start. So designing for voice uses the same tools that you would use for any UX project. So personas for the user and for the assistant, flows, research, iteration, testing. This is also just scratching the surface. So if you want to learn more, we actually do a half-day workshop just on voice itself. So keep an eye out for that as well. And as designers, we should just first create experiences that are looking to create that North Star for users. And some of these concepts are going to fall over into touch. So I'll hand it over to Dave to talk about touch. Thanks, Vicky. So haptics is a growing interest area for designers. Most of the time up until now, haptics has been associated with two different types of user experience. 
On the one hand, you had haptic surfaces and touch screens that were simulating mechanical buttons and making controls more tactile. On the other hand, you had content experiences like gaming and VR, where you're using force and vibration to make people feel more immersed. But actually, haptics can do a lot more than that, and even within those domains can do more. And so we'll dive into that. But the first thing for designers that are getting into this space is to understand how the sense of touch works at kind of a high level. Just like we hear in two channels with two ears, we also feel in the multiple channels. And you might be surprised to hear that we feel in many more channels. So there are four channels of mechanoreception, that is physical interaction with the skin. There are two channels of thermal response to heat and cold, and there are even others. And so having kind of a working knowledge of this and which kinds of nerve endings respond to which types of stimuli will help you find opportunities for design and, and tune your design for the sense of touch. And for the values of multisensory design we're talking about today, haptics is very relevant. So haptics can make interactions much more intuitive. We use our bodies to move through the world and physically interact with it. Then we go and, and interact with digital artifacts and a lot of the sense of touch is, is lacking. And so by reintroducing the sense of touch, you can make digital interaction much more intuitive. The sense of touch is universal. Everyone has a sense of touch and it reaches down into the deepest parts of our brain having to do with our being as a human, as an animal in the world. And it's also more memorable. So haptics, when it is synchronized to other modalities, the experience that you have will be easier to remember because you have multiple different sensory modalities that are stimulated at the same time. So it's easier to create memories. And it's hard to overstate the importance of this. Take the guitar player. When you're learning to play guitar, you might be looking closely at the guitar, but eventually you kind of internalize the playing and it just becomes something that is sensory and tactile. So as designers, again, to reiterate, it's important to understand that there is an entire stack of technology that's required to enable a haptic experience. And there's no general purpose haptic display the way that we have in screens for visual and speakers for audio. Typically haptic systems have to be designed for the product in a bespoke way where you have, you have an actuator that's the component that actually creates the haptic sensation. You need to drive it. You need software on top of that, and then you can create a design. As a designer, you know, one of the first things to understand as well is what the haptics is good for, what touch means to people, what they bring from their past experiences to the experience. So for example, a lot of designers first looking at haptics might make a beginner's mistake of thinking that they're going to use it to convey words or language or letters, right? And you can do that and people can respond to that well, but they'll need to be trained. Whereas if you exploit their pre-existing understanding of what touch means, like for example, as a mediator of emotion, you'll be able to fit in with their expectations better and probably create a more cohesive design. There are also geographical and cultural differences in touch. So I said touch is universal and that's true, but the way that people interpret touch, especially socially, varies by culture. In some cultures, it's common to hug and kiss to say hello. It's common to be in contact with strangers, for example, on a packed train. And then in other cultures, it's really not. And touch means something more intimate to them. And so knowing who your users are will help you understand how tactile design fits with their expectations. And these are the haptic design elements that Immersion likes to train designers with. So these are the six things that haptics are always doing in some combination. 
you can create your haptic design to do more than one at once, but you're always doing these things. So one thing is shifting attention gracefully from one task to another. So if you're focused on your computer and you're typing and you're completely absorbed in your work, and then somebody taps you on the shoulder to get your attention, that's an example of haptics shifting your attention. And again, we have that expectation. So haptics can do that well also in a digital context. Haptic can create delightful moments. So the beating heart of a heart emoticon that makes you feel like you're actually touching something physical is delightful and unexpected. Haptics can mediate information flow. So you can actually present, for example, the magnitude of information, the amount of information that somebody's getting or the type of information that they're getting to somebody through the sense of touch. Sensory immersion comes into play for VR, AR, gaming, where you're using haptics to augment the person's touch points or interaction with the software or product. Hedonics refers to the positive or negative internal response that we have to a haptic stimulus. So you can make a haptic effect feel good or bad all by itself with no context. And so knowing that that is a tool you can use can create desire or aversion for a product or a brand. And then illusion has to do with perfectly replicating real world haptic experiences in the digital domain. Embodied cognition is an important concept to understand as well. That has to do with the fact that when we think, we can't help but account for what our body is feeling and doing. It's a little bit counterintuitive, but there's a pile of evidence going back decades that this is the case. And here are some examples below. We have a metaphorical understanding of importance as being heavy. And so, for example, if you wanted to create a product or brand experience where you wanted to convey a sense of stability and weight and gravity, like for a financial institution, let's say, then you might want to play with this understanding of weight as playing into that, right? If friendliness is warm and you want to create a friendly experience, you might ex experiment with temperature to mediate that interaction. Or if you want to create a sense of the future and excitement and optimism, you might play with the idea of pulling forward in a direction going forward. So understanding all of these metaphors, and there's many more, may point the way to interesting, innovative designs. And to talk about space, I'll hand it off back to Vicky. Great, thanks, Dave. Now we're going to flip the script a little bit and think about the senses that devices have and how spatial computing, contextual awareness, really shifts our interaction patterns. This is going to create digital products that learn us instead of us needing to learn those devices. When devices have spatial awareness, they are predictive and proactive, allowing experiences to be more intuitive, universal, and memorable. When we think about designing for space, there are a lot of domains that use this, from fully digital environments like game design to physical places like architecture and urban design. And when we design for experiences in physical spaces, we draw from those specializations. So we'll be talking today about digital experiences in physical spaces. So the simplest example of designing for spatial awareness is if you have like multiple smart speakers in your home, the one that you're closest to will respond to your request. The sensors on those devices reduce the burden on the user to think about navigation, menus, commands, and really focus on the thing that they came here to do. With that, we still think about this being broken down into three areas. So there's environments, surrounding, and self. And understanding space as it relates to these three spheres helps break down the massive amount of data that goes into something more manageable for us to design to. So first, we're gonna talk a little bit about environment. So when we consider the larger environment, we have to take 
the big public information into account. For example, designing a delivery bot that's navigating to drop off lunches. Just consider the amount of information that's necessary to make that trip happen and all of the ways that it impacts the people that are around it. When we think about all this data, the concept of the spatial web and the digital twin begins to make sense. So the spatial web is the concept that there's kind of this layer of digital information for every object in the environment that's constantly being updated by all the devices in that environment. And it creates opportunities for an interaction with that information at every point. That's a lot of data, that's public data. And when we begin to move inward into our homes and spaces, the data becomes more accessible and personal and private, but also more proactive and useful for the user. So if a smart home adjusts to your preferences, it's totally okay because you're in a comfortable space where it knows you. And this is where we begin to think about personal space in the literal way of how it relates to our devices. When we think about proximity as it relates to social interactions, we can easily begin to see how that affects our digital interactions as well. So you'll type secrets into your phone when you're holding it, but you know, you're gonna keep your smart fridge at an arm's distance. That leads us to self. So when devices sense us, it can be right in our intimate space and design that takes into account user comfort level is really key. So when that becomes comfortable for the user, there's a wide array of opportunities for immersive experiences. So as sensor technology evolves and data becomes more open to our cities, homes, and ourselves, it becomes not just a future exploration, but actually a requirement to leverage that data to make our experiences adapt to the user's needs. We're just going to talk a little bit about how these pieces start to come together. Thanks, Vicki. We touched on three key modalities that address the different senses, but to design a great product, we must understand not only the individual, modalities, but how they combine and play together to create a solution that's greater than the sum. So now what we'd like to do is to take you through three case studies we worked on to demonstrate how these combine. And we've only scratched the surface again, and we're still learning, but we'd like to share some of those learnings with you. So the first one is an example of the combination of voice and tactile. And this is actually a case study where we worked with immersion, the haptic cuff. So uh, Dave, can you give us an overview? Sure. So anticipating the advent of 5G and the tactile internet, we came to Punch Cut asking what can we do to create multiple different haptic sensory modalities. And what we came up with was this haptic cuff that includes thermal feedback, so it can get hot, it can get cold. It can squeeze your wrist gently or quickly. And it also has an array of tactile actuators that can create vibration patterns that wrap around the wrist. And we worked with PunchCut to define that user experience and design a system. Cool, yeah, and just to give you all an idea of how this came about, we really started with primary research, uh, interviewing experts across a range of fields and performed secondary research, focused around how types of touch communicate different emotions. And the research led us to design a concept for this wearable that could communicate actions and emotions via the tactile senses. And we asked, what if we could add a nonverbal communication layer between AI and humans, allowing them to communicate in richer ways? Because a large part in how we communicate is through body language and what we say and do to each other is largely affected by our interpretation of how another feels and acts. And so the haptic cuff is intended to kind of simulate that between AI and machine. We mapped haptic vibration to meaning. 
So we wanted wares to feel when an agent was greeting you, saying goodbye, thinking, speaking, when it was confused, when it understood you, when it's trying to get your attention or pointing you to a certain direction. And we also mapped haptic patterns to different emotion using vibration, pressure, and temperature to communicate different feelings such as love, anger, or sadness. We illustrated those scenarios to demonstrate the user experience. And this scenario was really about an AI helping a stressed office worker, Tobio, make reservations for him and his friends at a restaurant and a movie later that night. At the restaurant, AI even nudges him to ask one of his friends out on a date. And throughout these exchanges, the AI is detecting Tobio's emotions and responding in kind and even expressing its own emotions. Some of the highlights of the cuff interactions in these scenarios, you'll see on the left side, AI detects that the wearer is feeling stressed and with sadness asks what's wrong and sadness is communicated by the band turning slightly cool. There's a moment in the second one where he expresses gratitude and the band expresses love back and that's communicated by the gentle constriction and warmth of the band. In the third one, the AI is nudging him to chat with his interest in a certain direction. So direction is communicated by the actuators firing in a certain pattern. And in the fourth one, the AI is kind of annoyed that he's not taking action. And so once again, nudges him to chat with his interest and this time with more emphasis. And that emotion is communicated with this abrupt constriction and a cold temperature. And then finally, the last one shows because uh, he's had a good night, the AI expresses joy as well. And that's simply communicated via the warmth of the band. So those are just some examples of patterns that have emerged. Dave, do you want to talk about prototyping? Yeah. So we did start prototyping this wristband. It's a very interesting experience. If you're going to do multi-sensory design, it's important to get prototyping as quickly as possible, maybe even more important than in traditional design, just because the senses can overlap and complement each other in interesting ways. For example, we discovered that a slight gentle squeeze combined with a warm thermal effect created a really compelling simulation of a hug. You wouldn't think that you could feel a hug on your wrist, but it feels like the emotion of love conveyed to you at a very deep level. That was a great discovery that wouldn't have come through just desk research we had to get hands-on. So it's extra challenging to prototype multi-sensory design because there aren't these general purpose platforms yet, but it's probably even more important than traditional design. All right, and I'm taking the next section as well about space and tactile. And the context of space and tactile design we'll be talking about is automotive. In the car, you have HMIs that are advancing in the number of functionalities that they provide. There are more and more features, more advanced technology being integrated into the car, but design is becoming more streamlined. So instead of having a one-to-one -one mapping of a physical control to a car function, you now have one-to-many mappings and a very complex HMI. If you look though at the cockpit, you realize that it is a great opportunity for spatial design combined with tactile. The driver is sitting on the seat, they're in constant contact with it, as well as a steering wheel. They typically be surrounded by touch screens, touch surfaces, button clusters. And so thinking about haptics at the beginning of that process and designing the haptic experience to be consistent throughout the driver experience is really important. The range of haptics in cars is here. So you have everything from simple vibrations that just let you know that you've turned on or off a function, replacing a mechanical button. You can have multiple different vibrations 
So notification alerts when you cross a lane line, for example, you have something called HD haptics and haptics HD is also high definition, but in this case, it refers to the frequency response and transient response of the actuator. And so that lets you do more advanced HMI controls like button textures, dials, et cetera. As we move to drive by wire, force feedback becomes important because you're not actually controlling the physical response of the car, you're controlling an abstraction of it. And so you need to then replace that inherent feedback that you used to get with digital haptics. And then surface haptics, which will let you feel physical features on a flat surface programmatically so that you can explore a surface and find the button you need. And there are haptics in cars today. You know, this is not something that's coming in the future. It's, it's actually commonplace, especially in high-end cars. And even mid-tier cars are starting to get it. And in fact, the Volkswagen Golf is going to have haptics in its latest iteration. So you see this trickling down market. You have advanced haptic use cases being worked on by some of the more innovative companies making high-end cars. But really, even the advanced haptic use cases are a refinement of existing ones or a continual replacement of physical controls. So the automotive industry haptic design has been around for 10 years, but I think that there's still an opportunity to use haptics in creative, innovative ways. Immersion work with Alps Alpine, we partnered to create a futuristic cockpit and there's haptics infused throughout the experience, including on the steering wheel, on the uh, side panels, and even as the car transitions between different autonomy levels, the HMI transitions between something more focused on control of the car to something more about entertainment and comfort. And so this prototype example reference is available today and we're excited to bring it to OEMs and show them what's possible. As we think about spatial design in the car, it's interesting to consider these different tiers of space. So for example, we have the state of the driver, their emotional, physical state, the state of their attention. We can manage that with haptics. Also the way that the cabin is configured, the vehicle state. So what's happening with the machine itself and then its relationship to other vehicles, which will become more and more important as 5G and other high bandwidth wireless services roll out. You're going to have richer data available to you about the environment of the car. And if you design the haptic experience well, you can really create this illusion where the person's proprioception, their sense of their body extends to the car. You know, if you're learning how to drive, again, just like the guitar story, if you're learning how to drive, you're going to be focused on the task, but as you get better at it, the car just gets absorbed into your brain body map. And so that can be facilitated with haptics. And I'll pass it over to Vicky for voice in space. Thanks, Dave. Bringing voice interactions into a device that has this contextual awareness provides really new opportunities for predictive and responsive experiences. So we recently worked with a hardware manufacturer to create a home device that had a robust sensor array and intelligence, but didn't have a touch screen. So I can't get into the details of the product too much, but I just want to talk about how you start to solve a problem like this. First, we take all of the many interactions methods that are both in voice and sound and also in space and environmental awareness. And then this becomes a game of sorting through all of these inputs and orchestrating how they work together. We discovered three primary inputs that were really powerful and formed a really good team of interaction. And that's presence, gesture, and voice. We identified the superpowers and weaknesses of each to create this complementary interaction set. 
So for example, voice is great at search, but pretty awful at browsing options. However, gesture is great for maybe swiping through one or two options and being able to see those there. Now, presence, that's an interesting one. So thinking back to the personal space diagram that we looked at of the proxemics, we took a similar approach looking at distance as a factor of interaction. So we adjusted a bit for visual perception and audio range to create zones for how the device would interact and respond to the user. This ranges from engaged when the user is directly interacting with it, with very personalized information and specifics of what that individual needs, to when you're farther away, more in that social public space, you have more public information that's glanceable, that's a little less personal, and more available widely. With so many inputs, coordinating these becomes a core factor. So my favorite tool for this is Swimlink Diagram. And this brings multimodal interactions to show some of the redundant patterns that you want to have so that users can do what's most natural and easy for them at that moment. In this example, we needed to coordinate a voice agent, TV audio, multiple screens, a second device, a remote, all of these pieces that would go into a single interaction. To talk a little bit about the next step here, um, I'll toss it back to Reggie. Thanks, Vicky. So, hey, if you guys are working on a product, there's good news and bad news. It's already multisensory because it's being seen, it's being felt, it's being heard, interacted with within a space. And that might be bad news because your product is potentially not taking advantage of its full potential in leveraging the senses. But it's also good news because your product has so much opportunity to take advantage and to evolve. As we think about evolving the way that we design, we think it's crucial to design for the senses. And today we might talk about it as sensory design or multi-sensory design, but tomorrow we believe it's just design. Right? Much like the qualifier smart in our devices, smart home, smart watch, smart TV, that's going to be phased out eventually because the future most products will be smart. Sensory will also be unnecessary because this is just a natural evolution in the way we evolve our practice. But we also acknowledge that the path isn't trivial. It's filled with some challenges. And we face these every day as we work with clients and even as we build and grow our own team. Some of those challenges range from prototyping, where tools are geared towards screen design still and have limited support for other modalities like sound, voice, and haptics, and even leveraging device sensors and communicating with other devices. There's gaps in education. There are great design programs out there, but to this day still, their courses largely emphasize training designers to design for screen-based interfaces. Sharing designs is a challenge. And while it's relatively easy to share visuals with many people at once communicating how something feels or how space feels is more challenging. Similarly with evaluation, a lot of testing methods and tools are geared towards testing what people see and sharing and evaluating designs is especially more challenging in a socially distant world. The technology is still nascent, so it's still early and not really ready for consumer scale. And multi-sensory design will challenge us and encourage us to incorporate more disciplines than we might be familiar or used to. So we need to get into the habit of bringing in other fields we might not be used to working with. Fields like architecture, neuroscience, data science, linguists, educators, interior design, just to name a few. And then ethics, as technology makes a deeper and wider impact on our lives. And as we discover new possibilities for leveraging our senses, we'll no doubt Across uncharted territory here. It can be overwhelming if you think about everything at once and think about the barriers ahead of us. 
But here are some actionable steps that we've seen work and that have helped some of our clients. One step is to examine your design system. Design systems are largely for screen-based interfaces, for visual design, because products are largely visual. What does it look like to start incorporating sensory guidelines in your design system that aim to answer questions like, how does your product feel? How does it sound? Incrementally augment, so you don't have to boil the ocean. A stepped approach would be to add one modality, either to an existing product or a new product. For example, it could be as simple as adding an Alexa skill or Google Action that leverages voice. Assume user limitations. So we've seen way too many hero flows or golden flows that assume that users are using products in this very perfect environment. And we all know that's never the case. So let's all assume that our users, personas, um, they don't have all their senses perfectly tuned and focused on using your product. Your users are probably trying to use your app while multitasking or distracted, possibly with one or no hands available. Another great example of situational limitation is in the car, right? Driving is one giant situational limitation and a good car interface is one that drivers don't have to focus on much. One that supports the act of driving, not dangerously distracts from it. Assuming these limitations in your users will help you think about how you can use different modalities to support your users in different situations. And with that, analyze context. To analyze the context in which your experience will be used. In our design practice at PunchCut, we use what we call experience systematics to really analyze the ecosystem of people, spaces, devices, and services that the experience we're designing will fit into when users are using that product. This framework answers questions about the qualities of these four areas and really maps the relationships between these areas, which often leads us to surprising and unexpected insights. Focusing your research. Enhance your research methods to focus on sensory experiences. When doing evaluative research, start to incorporate questions and observations focused on how users are using their senses when using the product. Similarly with generative research, start to incorporate questions and observations focused on the senses. And then finally, evolve your design artifacts. A lot of designers are familiar with artifacts like user journeys, personas, service blueprints, flows, architecture diagrams. We've all used these in the past to define our solution, but start to incorporate sensory dimensions into your templates, even if it's just to remind yourselves that these senses will be engaged as your users are using your product. Speaking of design artifacts, we're continuously evolving our methods and creating new artifacts that help us to design for multi-sensory experiences better. We'll be sharing them out as we go over our different channels. So definitely be sure to follow us and look out for some of those examples. Lastly, if you need support in defining your path to embracing multi-sensory design in your products, we can definitely help. PunchCut and Immersion are partnering together so we can partner with companies to accelerate innovation. Thank you, Reggie. This is Ken. I'm looking to see if there are any questions coming in here. Uh, one other question here, Dave, I don't know if this is for you. Do you already have developed a product for cars? Yes, we, we do make uh, haptic solutions for automotive OEMs and tier ones. And we're happy to talk more about that to individual companies or people who are interested. So just contact me afterwards. Great. And then uh, one other here is, have you used interoceptive signals to guide the development of any of your products? 
I mean, that's a tough one because you would need advanced biometric sensors to know what was happening. So I think it's a really interesting idea. Of course, interoception refers to internal sensations. For example, hunger is an interoceptive sensation. And so imagining technology that could anticipate those types of needs and sensations and provide responses to them is a very interesting one. But I don't think that in the very near future, we have technology to really support that. Great. Thanks, Dave. And one last question. How can designers without multimodal experience enter these spaces? Should we just focus on one or any guidance for uh, designers as they're evolving here? Something that I want to just offer as an idea that we've used to good effect is video prototyping. So a lot of times in order to build a multi-sensory design, you need to do a lot of technology development just to get it to work well enough to test an idea. And it really isn't practical in a lot of times. So what we've done in the past is created videos that depict multi-sensory design. So we have an actor that's standing in for the user and they're interacting with fake technology, you know, props basically. And then we add multi-sensory cues to the video as video tracks. And then you're able to show that to users or executives or whoever you need to show it to. And they can understand the idea behind the design and that can get you buy-in to move forward and iterate through your creative process. I'll add to the question of how do you get into this field and should you specialize? And if you're already a UX designer, you can just start to add this immediately into your process of thinking about all of the inputs that are happening around your user. So even if you're just developing a mobile app, you have to think about where the person is in space, where people are going to be using this and how you can leverage that information into your product immediately. Because even if you're not thinking about it, like we said earlier, the experience you're making is already multi-sensory, whether you're designing for it or not. Great. Well, I want to thank everyone today for attending. Certainly want to thank our panelists, Reggie, Dave, and Vicky. We really appreciate all the great information and the opportunity to share that. I want to thank the attendees. We appreciate you taking the time. We will be sharing the recording of this to you in the next few days. So look for that. Also, just want to thank Immersion. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, Immersion, for all the great collaboration. Feel free to follow us, either Punch Gut or Immersion. We're happy to help in any way we can as you evolve and grow, both in your company and as individual designers in this new exciting space. That's all we have today. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. More information about this show is available at podcast.davebernbaum.com. Beats by Ilium C.